0: And this little voice uh, confirms that we are recording this event. It is, therefore, a public event. Uh, The recording will be posted on the Nuclear Information and Resource Service website, which is www.nirs.org. And for the rest of the evening, we probably will use our acronym, which is pronounced NIRS for the organizational name. My name is Mary Olson. I'm actually in the Southeast office in Asheville, North Carolina. The home office where one of our speakers, Diane Derigo, is located is in Tacoma Park, Maryland. And as I stated, we're on the web at www.nirs.org. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Our uh, evening is going to be broken into two parts. The first part, we will have speakers, and the second part, will be taking questions from those who've called in. Um, and we do have a nice digital view that will call on people individually. And we want to reserve most of the evening for that activity. Um, so at the point where we're done with the presentations, uh, Jasmine Bright, who is our communications specialist, we will explain the process for participating in the question and answer. And finally, I want to just thank everybody for participating and calling in. Uh, NIRS does a telebriefing once a quarter. Sometimes we add, but these are outreach events and we encourage people to share the link to the recording. And um, I want to thank our speakers as well. So I'm now going to turn to our topic, which is the most concentrated and highly radioactive stuff on our planet. I'm sure that if there are ways to detect it from space, uh, about 50, 70 years ago we started showing up as having a lot more radioactivity on this planet than ever before. And many people don't understand that the vast quantity of that new radioactivity is produced when we make electric power from splitting atoms. And that's because the fission, the splitting of the atoms, is going on 24-7. When the fuel is done being used, it's now waste. And that's the waste we're going to be talking about tonight, those intensely radioactive fuel rods and the fact that... Last year, there was a huge change in our nation's policies and, more importantly, processes around uh, this waste. And I'm sure you're thinking, you know, the election, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. But I'm not actually talking as much about Trump as I am about the departure and retirement of uh, Nevada Senator Harry Reid, because Reid was the one who managed to keep his big sort of grumpy boot on top of the money for any spending from the federal government towards the high-level waste program. And I want to stop for a moment. I've just said federal government and radioactive waste program. I am talking about my country, the United States, when I use those words. And our first speaker tonight actually is representing a different country, and we'll get to that. But uh, anticipating Harry Reid's retirement, the fact that this guy who is the Senate Majority Leader, then the Minority Leader, Head of Appropriations uh, for his party, was able to keep the spending from happening for more than a decade is very amazing. And now he's gone. And so we got together and we said, okay, we're going to have to step up again from the grassroots at a level that we have not for a while on these issues. And we realized that there are three prongs of our campaign. We need to end the Yucca Mountain site, which we're going to hear more about. We need to stop centralized interim storage, which we will hear more about. And we need to implement much better storage, also called HOSS, or hardened on-site storage. And so these are three concurrent organizing objectives, and they are now under one big umbrella that we have come to together this year called Don't Waste America. Some of you remember and some of you are still involved in a previous round of Don't Waste America. There is still Don't Waste Michigan, Don't Waste New York, and Don't Waste Arizona. And 20 years ago, there was an outbreak of similar groups across the country working together successfully to stop 40-plus, we haven't got an exact count, but we believe there were... 40 proposed locations for dumping so-called low-level waste, everything that's not the fuel rods I am focusing on tonight. All of the other types of radioactive waste fall into other categories, the largest of which in terms of volume is so-called low-level, but there's plenty of radioactivity in it. And those victories of stopping the so-called low-level waste dumps across the country are worth remembering and celebrating. And so we are pleased and proud to invoke those victories because we are now going to stand together and stop some really stupid, and I'm sorry to use that word, I shouldn't use a pejorative term, but when it comes to radioactive waste legislation, I really think it's the nicest word I can come up with, is stupid new legislation in Congress. Um, They are trying to revive Yucca Mountain, and we say no. They're trying to authorize new parking lot dumps for storage, and we say stop it. And, in addition, as a community, we now need to implement the hardening of storage. So those three prongs together are under this new umbrella called Don't Waste America. And that is what we are launching tonight as a community. And Nuclear Information and Resource Service is so pleased and proud to host um, this event. Our first speaker tonight is Ian Zabardi. He is principal man. In the Western Shoshone Bands, I'm making a mistake, Western Shoshone.
1: Western Bands of the Shoshone Nation of Indians.
0: Thank you, Ian. Why am I not able to do that? Because my brain is programmed in a way that doesn't correctly acknowledge that word nation. So I'm going to try it again. Western Bands, Shoshone Nation of New Zagobia. That is his home, New Zagopia, and that is where Yucca Mountain is and always has been.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yucca is the one site that current nuclear waste law of the United States considers legal, if licensed, for highly radioactive waste. The Shoshone Nation is a party to the Yucca license process. And I just want to add one last little comment, and that is that Congress of the United States chose the Yucca site. There was no geologist in the room when that decision was made to only study the Yucca Mountain site. It's rotten geology. And even more important, I believe, is that there was no one from the Shoshone Nation, from New Zagobia, in the room either.
1: Ian? Hi, everybody. Um, I also. Uh want to point out that I'm the secretary for the Native Community Action Council, which is the party withstanding in the Atomic Safety Licensing Board of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So I've been involved in uh, Yucca Mountain since approximately 1986, and uh, uh, I got involved in this because my people were suffering the adverse health consequences known to be plausible from exposure to radiation and fallout from U.S. and the United Kingdom testing of weapons of mass destruction in my country. They came to my country in secret and uh, developed these weapons, and our experience is what informed the contentions that we uh, submitted to the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission in 2008. So uh, Mary said that Yucca Mountain is a uh, uh, a bad, stupid uh, bill, Uh, the current effort or even the last one as well, um, we see it actually as legislative malpractice because it is within our uh, uh, treaty-defined country. Uh, that's the 1863 Treaty of Ruby, treaty of Ruby Valley. Um, and uh, we've been fighting this uh, for even long before that. We, we began our, our efforts with the uh, MX missile, and as we began to realize uh, that our people were dying and our land was uh, being Affected, We started investigating some of those health consequences a little bit more, and uh, we were looking at our foods, uh, diet, mobility, and lifestyle. And based on these lifestyle differences, they formed our contentions in the Atomic Safety Licensing Board that the EPA didn't consider when they set the uh, 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 regulatory limits for uh, radiation exposure uh, for Yucca Mountain and we did provide comments, uh, they ignored them. Now the uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission has uh, is in a position to adopt the Department of Energy's Environmental Impact Statement, and they too have essentially ignored our, our concerns. And uh, we're continuing to participate in the proceedings. We're gearing up. Uh, we've been geared up. Uh, I think our, our experience is, is unique that uh, as um, the owners of Yucca Mountain uh, and that's our position, the Department of Energy cannot prove ownership. They are required by uh, the siting guidelines to prove ownership, and they could not, they could not do that. So we began our involvement in two thousand and eight in the licensing proceedings, and soon after our uh, our contentions were filed, the Yucca Mountain Project ended. And we believe it's because the Department of Energy didn't uh, do what it was supposed to to obtain uh, rights for ownership. And we made that our primary contention that the, D- and, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, uh, in May of 2016, in their final report, uh, supplement to the final EIS, Uh, The NRC does not exercise statutory authority over disputes concerning land ownership. The NRC's regulation in 10 CFR 63.121 provides that land within the geologic repository operation area must be under DOE's jurisdiction and control or permanently withdrawn and reserved for DOE's use. The NRC staff staff concludes that DOE has not met the requirement of 10 CFR 63.121A and (d) regarding the ownership of land and certain water rights as discussed in Volume 4 of its Safety Evaluation Report. So that's what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, is uh, saying about the issues, which our primary contention, again, is ownership. Treaty of Ruby Valley is in full force and effect, and the Department of Energy cannot prove ownership free of significant encumbrances. This is Shoshone country. So the situation you saw play out, for example, in... Uh, uh, North Dakota with the Sioux We were doing that back in the 80s When the U.S. was testing weapons of mass destruction And uh, we had 20, 30,000 people out at the test site Protesting, but you didn't see about it You didn't hear about it on the television uh, uh, I think it would be Different now uh, And if we move ahead with The Yucca <laughs> Mountain Repository That's where we're going to end up going uh, Because that's our belief in who we are In relation to that land, that's what's most important to it. Our identity is in relation to the land. And this is where the environmental justice matter comes up because based on those lifestyle differences, which include things about the purity of water, things about uh, places and relationships to the land, when these things are starting to be destroyed, it's like ripping a page out of our Bible. How are we going to know the lessons that we're supposed to learn uh, if our land is destroyed and we don't have those connections? So the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was supposed to look at – the staff were supposed to look at the uh, discharge of radiation in groundwater uh, since uh, in the the last couple of years since the May 2016 uh, uh, safety evaluation report came out. And the NRC staff took that and found that there would be no impacts – to minority or low-income people, with with uh, uh, subsistence populations, and uh, I guess you would find that I would find the same thing if I didn't look at the evidence that says that there are Native Americans there and they do live a different lifestyle, and they're continue to live that lifestyle a thousand years in the future. And we believe that uh, this is just the same environmental racism, nuclear colonialism. And we're not going anywhere. We're going to be here. We're going to take this head on, and we want everyone to know what the truth is because that's really what we're armed with. All of the other parties spent $15 billion. We're the only unfunded party, and we believe that's environmental racism, and that's what we're dealing with. We hope you want to side with us and make this uh, protect this Yucca Mountain. I think that's about all I have to say. Thank
0: you, Ian, and I appreciate you speaking with us here and I hope we can hear you well. And I think it's a stereotype in our culture that uh, Native peoples are the ones that care about the future, but it's also true. And I wish that we will bring the dominant culture to care more about the future because this waste is going to be here. And a hazard for the next million years, and we all have a responsibility to make it be, you know, a plan that will work at the very least. So, honoring your people's uh, strong conviction that this plan is not going to work is something we all need to hear. So, thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, I'm going to just now stick in a couple of little things about transportation. We decided not to have a fourth speaker tonight, but if our Congress decides to pump a lot of money into Yucca Mountain or any of the other bad plans out there, uh, it would trigger the transportation of this highly, highly radioactive waste from the reactor sites where really most of it is. There's just been teeny tiny shipments so far of this particular kind of fuel rods, highly irradiated fuel rods. Um, And so this whole picture of moving the waste is something that will impact, um, I believe, 44 states. Yes. 329 congressional districts of, which is most of our members of the U.S. House who are going to be voting on this stuff. 386, counted them last night. Thank you. And that's Diane Rigo, my coworker, helping me here. Uh, I'm just going to give a couple more factoids that in the base case scenario, which is rooted in the Yucca Mountain uh, EIS that did not consider a lot of things, including what Ian's been talking about, but they have these scenarios. And this base case scenario says most of the waste would travel by rail. That would be, I'm rounding a little bit, but 9,500 containers of waste traveling across the United States, across these 44 states. Uh, 9,500 rail containers, and this base case said there would be also 2,000 trucks and it projects a 20-year period of continuous shipments, not necessarily every second, but definitely every week these, these containers would be moving. We know where the waste is now, but suddenly when you do this kind of like picture of this model of it all going out onto trains and trucks, it's, you don't know where it is. Where is it? I get really nervous. I was telling people that I'm sitting within a half mile of a projected uh, nuclear waste route and actually the rail line is also and I'm like definitely an eighth of a mile from there. These containers we've learned from um, Donna Gilmore has just been really doing the broad jump to bring us all up to speed on cheapo containers that our government has approved for the industry to save money. Um, they're thin steel and they are not Clearly, uh, we can't tell if they're going to crack or not. They could crack. They probably will crack, but there's no way to tell because they have no way to inspect them. And if there is a crack, they don't know how to fix them and they don't know how to transfer the waste. And so what do you do with these very now fragile containers being on these rail cars and on these trucks? So it makes me very nervous because the irradiated fuel has so much gamma rays and neutrons coming through the side of that wall that you can measure it a half mile away in any direction from that container. And so if these shipments start coming down the French Broad River through Asheville on a rail line an eighth of a mile from my house, just the other side of the river, I'm going to be getting increased radiation doses from that that I don't know about, nobody tells me, I don't get to consent to, and I certainly don't have any individual benefit. So with that, I'm going to now introduce Diane DeRigo, who's going to talk about a second scheme that would also trigger these transports. Um, Diane DeRigo is the director of the Radioactive Waste Project at Nuclear Information and Resource Service. And I think we're done saying exactly how long we've worked for the organization, but she was there five years ahead of me, and I've been there an awfully long time. So uh, Diane is going to talk about stop centralized storage with a focus on a small geographic area in the United States where there are two proposed storage sites, one in Texas and one in New Mexico, but they're actually very close to each other. I just want to add that NIRS has opposed consolidated storage many times for decades. There are four previous proposals that got names and sites. There were many others that didn't quite get that far. But the four are the East Tennessee MRS proposal, the Mescalero Apache Reservation proposal, uh, centralized storage at Yucca Mountain before it was officially chosen to be a repository in the 1990s and a site in Utah called private fuel storage. Now, none of these sites have ever received the waste we're talking about and all of them were stopped by the action of thousands and thousands of people across this country uniting together to say that moving the waste to a place that's supposed to be temporary is a bad idea. So Diane's going to unfold this more for us. Thanks. Thank you. Uh,
3: So as Mary mentioned, uh, we have a campaign fighting Yucca. We have a campaign fighting the so-called centralized interim storage and we have the quotations around interim because it's de facto probably going to be permanent if it happens and supporting better harder uh, improved storage uh, at or near the sites where the waste currently is to the extent that it can be there and uh, I want to first say that for the the concept of centralized interim storage, this concept has been around since the very beginnings of Congressional legislation. Uh, Back in the late 1970s, the the, uh, Congress first began facing the nuclear waste issue, and their first plan was for AFRs, away from reactor storage sites. And the three places that were then targeted were West Valley, New York, near where I come from, uh, Morris, Illinois, and Barnwell, South Carolina. So the away-from-reactor storage-targeted communities, uh, these all happened to be communities that were uh, building reprocessing facilities, and I'll get into that later, but that's that even makes all of this even another whole exponentially level worse. Exponential level worse. Uh, the reprocessing places uh, in the country were targeted by Congress in the late 70s to centralize the waste, and it was going to go there and supposedly be reprocessed. And the only reprocessing facility that did operate at West Valley was a abysmal failure. It's still projected to cost 10 billion to clean up, and that's how I got pulled into all of this stuff but the afr concept uh, in congress also got defeated and so the first proposed nuclear waste bills which would have allowed for away from reactor storage were stopped and then um, the low-level waste policy act passed because people didn't know what that was and they believed it was only medical waste and it really is mostly reactor waste uh... but then later on in nineteen eighty two In 1987, the high-level Nuclear Waste Policy Act and amendments did pass. So at that point, in 87, the provision was for MRS. AFR changed its letters to MRS, monitored retrievable storage. And that was a a plan that uh, targeted Native American communities, Native American nations, and a nuclear waste negotiator was appointed and was... Uh, charged with going to uh, get volunteers, volunteer Native American communities, to take the supposedly interim storage of nuclear waste. Uh, Over time, a campaign built up. Uh, One of our former board members, Grace Thorpe, and um, a current staff person at Physicians for Social Responsibility out in Washington and Oregon, Chuck Johnson, together uh, did the Nuclear Free uh, campaigns and got resolutions passed on many nations around the con- around the continent, and uh, campaigns against uh, these supposedly temporary MRS monitored retrievable storage sites, and the whole program that was trying to make that happen expired. It's in the Nuclear Waste Policy Amendments Act, but it expired in 1990. So it is now illegal to even. Have an MRS or CIS or AFR or whatever alphabet soup you want to call these nuclear dump sites. But that was, as Mary mentioned, um, there were communities targeted with that around the country, and they all eventually said no, and the program went away. <laughs> Until now, Shimkus is bringing it up again, and private companies have also been pushing to resume. So, I intended to start just real quick uh, with the real danger of this waste. I don't know who all is listening, but for people who have not been in the trenches fighting nuclear waste issues for decades, uh, I would just say a couple basic facts is that uh, there is no safe level of ionizing radiation, and that's what this radioactive waste gives off and that there's no guaranteed isolation only less bad options that we have to deal with and uh... so limiting the amount of waste that we generate is essential to trying to really isolate it and um and that's, that, that's not part of the plan um, irradiated fuel as has been discussed is the hottest part of the whole nuclear power and weapons fuel chain special commercial specially commercial irradiated nuclear fuel Uh, uranium when it's in the ground is not that concentrated it's mixed with other elements and dirt so it needs to be if, if you're gonna make uranium fuel you need to mine the uranium mill it convert it enrich it in uranium concentrate it in the uranium 235 atom Make fuel pellets, and then stack those pellets into 10-foot long rods. take a couple hundred rods per assembly, put a couple hundred assemblies in the core of a reactor, and then the sustain- self-sustaining uh, chain reaction makes, uh, breaks that uranium, makes the energy uh, releases the energy to um, turn the turbines and make electricity but also when the uranium splits it makes smaller radioactive elements like cesium and strontium and these are very biologically active there are hundreds of these elements that are formed it also forms heavier elements like plutonium and americium and uh, so what we've got in the uranium fuel, uranium in and of itself is extremely dangerous. It's an alpha emitter. It's very toxic uh, to kidneys, and it's also radiologically dangerous. But you can hold it in your hand without immediate death. <laughs> you can hold it in your hand if you don't inhale. And uh, But if... Uh, once it goes into the reactor core, it comes out millions of times more radioactive, basically causing immediate death or death within seconds when the fuel comes out of the core of the reactor. So it needs to be handled remotely and isolated and uh, stored under in radioactive fuel pools uh, that under 40 feet of water to shield both the heat and the uh, radioactivity. And over time, uh, the, some of the immediate, shorter-lasting radionuclides decay away uh, and the, coo- and the, radioactive, the heat melt, um, cools down, so it can be put into dry storage. Now, Mary mentioned that uh, we have learned uh, that about 20 years ago, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, without fully analyzing it, started approving high burn-up fuel, which means having more uranium-235 in the fuel rods, higher enrichment to start with, and leaving the rods the assemblies, the rods, the uranium sticks in the core of the reactor longer, which means that much, much more of this cesium and strontium and iodines and neptuniums and americiums and all the other hundreds of radionuclides are uh, exponentially more of this. So before we thought it was bad because you'd have an immediate lethal dose, this high burn-up fuel is even... Even much, much worse, and none of the containers have been evaluated. Uh, none of the shipping dangers have been evaluated for the high, the high burn up fuel so that's an exacerbated problem beyond what we already had. so the reactors around the country, nuclear power reactors we've got about a hundred of them still working uh, still licensed to operate and we 've got increasing numbers of closed ones. the fuel uh, went from the core into the fuel pools. And then uh, when the fuel pools got full, they started re-racking them to put way more in the pools than they were were intended to be able to manage heat-wise, weight-wise, radioactive stress-wise. They tried consolidating the rods, like disassembling the assemblies and pushing the rods closer together and getting more and more fuel in the pools. And they realized that they would have a bigger danger of a criticality and if there was a loss of coolant in the fuel pools if they uh, kept overpacking them and there would be less time for compensation if that started to happen. Uh, But they stopped the rod consolidation, but they still uh, re-racked the pools to fit as much as they could. And then they started putting it into dry canisters. And the dry canisters originally in the U.S. This was in the mid eighties they started uh, putting the fuel from the reactors into dry storage that um, those containers were originally thicker than what they eventually what they now license and or uh, certify so the casks now we we do not in this country have uh, thicker canisters being used as the fuel is coming out of the pools to the best of my understanding and um, the idea is that they take the older fuel and put it into the the dry casks and then eventually the dry casks will be moved to a permanent repository and put in. However the casks that go into a permanent repository have to be designed for the repository and since we don't have a repository we don't even know what the design needs to be and we've got thin-walled containers as Mary mentioned that are being used around the country that could be leaking or beginning to leak or getting cracks, and there's no system right now for uh, managing them. So uh, I've made the point that the fuel is dangerous. It's dangerous where it is, but it's uh, even more dangerous to start moving it back and forth on our roads and rails. The concept of centralized storage uh, revived again after the Yucca Mountain site was canceled when the Obama administration and the Department of Energy Decided wisely to cancel the Yucca Mountain project. Uh, They had to do something else, so they set up a pro nuclear Blue Ribbon Commission. The Blue Ribbon Commission uh, came up with, they ignored completely the repeated demands by the public for hardened storage and for reducing the amount of waste that's being generated and for um, uh, managing it um, with the goal of isolating it. And uh, they proceeded to, since they were a very pro-nuclear team, they they were mostly wanting to make the problem go away so that nuclear power could continue and more reactors could start. And uh, they supported the idea of centralized interim storage. And I always put the interim in quotes because what that would be is uh, a location that is away from reactors uh, that supposedly is not the permanent place. Back in 1987, when Congress was setting up an interim storage program, the, the MRS, they linked it. They said, "You're not going to. Ha- we are not going to have a supposedly interim site until there is a permanent site operating, so that there's a place for it to go once it goes to the centralized interim site." Um, in the current legislation before us in Congress, and. 2017 here. Uh, that linkage is being broken. They're saying, "Well, we'll just make centralized sites, and you know, the, the eventually there'll be a permanent place." And so, what's going to happen is a de facto permanent site. Or if, by some, uh, if we do end up with a permanent location that's different, then we would have another round of travel. So the waste would travel on the roads once to the temporary and then to the permanent site and I mentioned earlier that West Valley New York was one of the proposed AFR away from reactor sites it actually did have a reprocessing plant that operated uh, high worker exposures fires problems uh, expense and, and closed after only six years and only reprocessing a year's worth of fuel but fuel from all of the older reactors that were operating between 66 and 72 when it was uh, when reprocessing was going on the older nuclear reactors like Indian Point One and Big Rock Point in Michigan and Ghana in New York near Rochester and and some of the um, Wisconsin reactors they sent their fuel to West Valley and when the site realized that it wasn't going to be able to continue reprocessing that fuel then was shipped back in the 1980s, back to the reactors from whence it came. So if we do another centralized site, <laughs> we're going to have possibly some fuel that's on its third trip going to the centralized site. And then if we have a permanent one, then it would go four times. So the real dangers with centralized storage are that it doesn't solve anything. It gives the illusion of a solution, like Yucca Mountain. Uh, It exacerbates and it triggers major transport campaign and transport dangers. There are accident scenarios and terrorist possibilities uh, that could uh, release enormous amounts of radioactivity. Uh, It could lead to reprocessing, uh, which I mentioned earlier is a, makes the whole nuclear waste problem even worse. And uh, it adds another site to the number of sites that we already have. Uh, around the country, because even if closed reactor sites were to move their irradiated fuel, they still are contaminated and uh, they need to be isolated for a long time. I'm not saying that uh, they can permanently isolate the waste with sea level rise and many of these issues. West Valley itself is going to erode into the Great Lakes within 1,000 to 1,500 years, within 150 to 1,500 years. So nowhere is a really great place for it, as I said earlier. Uh, but, but the Centralized Interim Storage Program doesn't help solve anything. It simply spreads the waste around, and it decreases the pressure. If it, if it all did somehow get into one location or two locations, uh, it decreases the pressure to find a permanent system for isolating it. How am I doing on time?
0: Um, you're pretty much there.
3: Okay.
2: But
0: you can have a couple more minutes if you want to talk about the proposals in Texas and New Mexico, but
2: yeah. yeah. I can do that quickly. Sure. Um
0: so I, I did want to say too that the casks
3: themselves have major weaknesses. Uh we talked about cracking possibility of cracking and the inability to measure and or, or to monitor and um guarantee that they're they're working well. Um the transportation casks are not even designed to meet the real world conditions of a of an accident they the f- limits for fire and the drop test and submersion underwater are ridiculously short and they don't meet the the conditions that the waste might meet so uh, yes. After the Blue Ribbon Commission came up, and actually it even might have started before the Blue Ribbon Commission came up with the idea of centralized interim storage, mm-hmm. even though it's a violation of the current nuclear waste law of the land. It expired in 1990. It's not legal, and uh, if it, w- when it was legal, it needed to be linked to a permanent site, which we don't have. So uh, the Blue Ribbon Commission suggested this is one of the options to make these centralized interim sites. Uh, two companies so far in communities in West Texas and eastern New Mexico uh, have applied to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for these uh, CIS centralized interim storage facilities. One in Andrews, Texas, is waste control specialists, along with Tennessee uh, with uh, TN Americas a subsidiary of Areva and NAC International both of those are cask makers and Andrews uh the w- Waste Control Specialist site in Andrews County Texas or WCS already is a nuclear waste disposal site for so-called low level radioactive waste from both nuclear power and weapons and is precariously close to the Ogallala aquifer and has its issues and was railroaded into that state. Um, In New Mexico, about 30 miles away, if that, um, not far from the WIPP, Waste Isolation Pilot Plant Site, which had the big plutonium uh, accident in 2014 and took billions of dollars to get reopened very recently, um, is another site called, uh, well, it's, it's being proposed by Holtec, And it's in the Eddy and Lee County Energy Alliance uh, Consortium. So Eddy and Lee Counties and Holtec together are proposing to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to build a supposedly interim site. Their site would have the waste uh, put into cement holes in the ground. The one at Waste Control Specialists would have the canisters sitting in a parking lot. um, And they... I have a few differences, but basically they both want to get at the money in the nuclear waste fund that has been put into the uh, fund for managing permanently nuclear waste in the country. And uh, they're they're trying to change the law to enable them to get access to that money to allow their sites to be operated. And uh, so both of these applications were submitted to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and uh, the one f- for waste control is on a supposedly temporary suspension. Uh, while they reorganized their business, they were going to get bought out by another company, and they're doing very poorly economically, um, but I don't think they're out of the picture. And uh, the whole tech application is, uh, we're expecting soon to be up for uh Public comment. It has not yet been declared complete by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission.
4: I'm
0: going to step in here and say thank you, because we're going to have questions and answers, and I'm sure people are going to want to hear more. Thank you very much. Um, I want to just do a little teeny poster for some digital resources, and then we'll hear our final speaker. And so the first one is the Don't Waste America Campaign pages which are on the Nuclear Information and Resource website. Jasmine Bright has done a great job of getting these up, and they're under the section of the website, which is www.nirs.org, and on the left-hand pane is a list of options, and there's one called Campaigns, and under Campaigns is Don't Waste America, and there are, when you click that, the three prongs of the campaign, um, which are End Yucca, Stop CIS, which is Consolidated Interim Storage or Centralized Interim Storage, the C works either way, and the third one is the one we are now going to hear about uh, in a moment, uh, which is Implement Haas. Before we go there, I want to mention, clarify, that the shipments we're talking about are not yet happening. The campaign, Don't Waste America, is to prevent those shipments from happening unless and until there's a credible place for them to go. So we're not actually advocating that the waste stay where it is now forever, but uh, we do want there to be a clear understanding that moving this waste around in a shell game is a really miserably bad idea. So with that in mind, I want to mention that the best resource in addition to the Don't Waste America pages for information like maps of projected transport routes has been created by the State of Nevada. It's state.nv.us forward slash nuke waste. But you can just put in State of Nevada Nuclear and it will come up. And there's a whole section on transportation. The current year, 2017, includes a new feature, which is maps that are like, well, there's there's a big set of state-by-state maps that show the 44 states that are impacted. These new maps focus in on the top 20 cities. And I can't quite tell you whether it's by population top or impact top, but in any case, I'm not going to read all 20, but it includes Atlanta, Los Angeles, Boston, New York, Chicago, Miami, and 16 more that are really worth checking out if you live near a big urban area. These maps could really help you uh, understand this issue and help others to understand this issue. So now we're going to turn to the fact that the waste is somewhere. The waste is primarily at the reactor sites that made it. And our final speaker tonight is Deb Katz. She is the executive director of Citizens Awareness Network, often referred to as CAN. And CAN has had a leadership role in so many dimensions, in reactor closure, in waste stewardship, in environmental justice, and right in the wake of the terror of 2001, I almost said 2011, but that's Fukushima, and I'm talking about the World Trade Center attack. In the wake of that, as a reactor community, they called a summit, a people's summit, to talk about how to make the sites where the waste is now. I can't say safe. It's not safe. (laughs) but safer. So from this summit came a document, and I'm going to say its name, as you would find it online, which is Principles for Safeguarding Nuclear Waste at Reactor Sites. As a source of confusion eternally, most people refer to that same document as the HOSS Principles, H-O-S-S-4, Hardened
5: On-Site Storage. Deb, you take it from here. Sure. Ian started talking with the idea of what a targeted community goes through in terms of dealing with the federal government and nuclear corporations wanting to make their waste problem disappear. And I come to this from a reactor community that has in fact lived with nuclear waste on site for many years, and in fact I live between two nuclear waste dumps at this point. One is four miles from my home in rural Massachusetts, and the other is 16 miles. I want to start by saying there is no scientifically sound or environmentally just way to deal with nuclear waste at this point in time, and that in a certain way is the context in many ways for why Haas came about, Hardened On-Site Storage. And I'm gonna give a little context because I think it may make it more understandable why we began dealing with this idea of protecting nuclear waste on site. We worked to close the Yankee Roe Reactor in Western Massachusetts and in fact, We were instrumental in its closure, and we wanted the waste out of that site, in fact, right away, including the high-level waste, because, in fact, my community suffered from an epidemic of disease that included breast cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, children with Down syndrome, children with birth defects. So we experienced that waste as really hurting our community. And we didn't want it around. And in fact, Yankee Atomic, the reactor that owned, the company that owned the reactor began a rapid dismantlement, was releasing more nuclear waste into our river, and was shipping the rest of the waste to Barnwell, South Carolina, which is a poor, rural, 46% African-American community. And what this raised for us was a terrible terrible situation since the waste had hurt us it seemed intolerable to us to in fact hurt anyone else with what had hurt us and it raised moral and ethical issues that led to our doing caravan of conscience tours down to barnwell to alert people along transport routes as well as in south carolina to these issues It also raised the issue for us that reactor and targeted communities needed to work together to, in fact, pressure the government to create a scientifically sound and environmentally just solution. But to make that also happen, there had to be a way to deal with the vulnerability of reactor communities that had not been addressed. And as we began to struggle with this, 9-11 happened. And so the issue of taking this on became more important than ever. And as Mary said, we organized this summit in which we got waste and reactive communities together to try to find a way to work together rather than opportunistically wanting someone else to deal with our problem. And part of the, Interim solution we came up with was the idea of hardened on-site storage. And hardened on-site storage was in part a way to protect reactor sites. It was also a way to get reactor communities to accept that the waste would stay on-site rather than agreeing to have it moved either to interim storage or to Yucca Mountain. And the things that Haas was going to do was, in fact, hopefully decrease some of the risk and the consequences of an act of malice. Because, in fact, the National Governors Association came out after 9-11 and said that nuclear reactor fuel pools were pre-deployed weapons of mass destruction. So... The issue, and it's been talked about, of getting the fuel out of the pool and putting it into dry cast storage, and in fact, increased protection in dry cast storage was one of the concepts to HASS in this. We also believed that it was really important to look at the issues of hardening the waste on site, and some of these included using reinforcing the casks with concrete and steel structures so they were double-walled. In fact, protecting the structures with mounds of concrete, steel, and gravel. And the usually dry cast storage canisters are about six feet apart from each other. And what we were advocating, depending on the size of the site, was that they be 60 to 70 feet apart. The, the idea of this was to in fact, to attempt to provide an acknowledgement to reactor communities that there was that there was that there really was a problem because until now the basically the nuclear industry and the federal government have dealt with the vulnerability of reactor fuel pools and re- nuclear waste as a problem with uh, as more of a public relations problem than the real problem that it is, that there is, in fact, no solution to dealing with the most toxic waste they've created. And, in fact, the work now has to be to harden the waste on site, but, in fact, to set aside Yucca Mountain and interim storage and actually do the hard work of getting the government To act to protect the people and create a science based approach to finding a way to deal with this waste so that it does not hurt people and we do not leave a legacy for our children to try to clean up the mess we've made. Thank you. Thank you, Deb.
0: All right, Um, Jasmine, I am going to turn it over to you to explain how we do the Q&A. Sure. Um, This is Jasmine Bright, the Communications Specialist at Nuclear Information and Resource Service. All right, so the Q&A
6: session is about to begin. Um, In a moment, you'll be prompted to press star six if you'd like to ask a question, and then press one to confirm and you'll be placed in the Q&A queue. Um, Your questions will be answered in the order received. So I'll begin that session now.
0: You know what, there was a click that maybe no one else heard, but could you say again how they raise their hand? Oh,
2: sure.
6: Yeah, so you'll be prompted to press star six, and then you have to confirm by pressing one, and your hand will be raised. Um, You'll be in the queue.
3: Okay. Thank you.
6: I will take the questions in the order received. All right. Starting
0: now, I'm not seeing it at all. So it's up to you to call on people.
6: Yeah. So the queue is empty. Oh, we have one now. Um,
4: We have Rosemary. So I'll go ahead and start with her.
6: And all right, Rosemary.
4: Yes, I recently heard of a company called Argani Laboratories that works out of the University of Chicago, and they have come up with a recycling process for highly reactive uh, fuel, spent fuel. And two of our senators here in Michigan have um, submitted this to the president, Uh, wrote a um, resolution asking for them to use this process for recycling. And I'm wondering if you know anything about it.
0: Diane, do you want to take that or you want me to?
3: Um, I could hardly hear it. um, You do it because I couldn't hardly hear. I don't know if I have trouble in my office or what.
0: Okay. Um, This is Mary Olson, and I'm just going to give a brief answer because, honestly, I have not reviewed the current... uh, at most recent work out of Argonne Labs, but they are a national lab and they are in Chicago, and they have been working on different ways to, basically the the quote unquote recycling is the same as reprocessing, but typically the term recycling refers to these newer technologies that are not the um, big chemical separations, but all of them have a single goal, which is to take Uh, plutonium, and other fissile, meaning they can be split elements out of the waste. It doesn't actually reduce the radioactivity in any way, and it actually usually increases the volume by many orders of magnitude. And then the other wastes that are not reusable as something you can fission um, are typically now so-called low-level waste, and so they don't talk about those, and they just kind of do this magic accounting. Um, I used to call it voodoo accounting, but that's disrespectful, mm-hmm. so I'm calling it magic accounting, but nonetheless, okay. it's it's not um, a credible waste solution. And then just very briefly, plutonium is very much more difficult to control in a reactor, which is the goal, is to use it for more fuel in most reprocessing. Otherwise, you'd use it for a nuclear bomb, which is possible too. Um, it's harder to control in a reactor, and Dr. Lyman, who is on the Union of Concerned Scientists team, has done the work to show that plutonium fuel, if there is a major accident like Chernobyl or Fukushima, causes twice as many cancer fatalities in the long run, the long-term effects, than uranium fuel. So I don't think there's anyone who's been elected to office who should be interested in this program, because it definitely um, places a even greater level of harm from nuclear energy onto the general population.
4: Hmm. Well, Argani. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Argani calls this a pyrochemical processing. Yes, indeed. And it's called. It's
0: pronounced Argon, by the way, after the okay, element, thanks. Argon I Labs. Sure. And it is uh, a different kind of reprocessing. I am not going to take the time tonight to go there because it's a long and interesting conversation, but you can definitely contact me, Mary O at nirs.org, and we can go into all the details, but just very briefly, it is a way to melt the fuel and then mm-hmm. apply vast amounts of electricity to the melted fuel, and then pull the plutonium more slowly because it's bigger, so it doesn't mm-hmm. move as fast in that electrical field. It's a way to separate plutonium. And any separation of plutonium in the view of most nonproliferation experts is a huge uh, move in the wrong direction, let alone all the environmental impacts and all of the Mm -hmm. MOX fuel impacts that I just enumerated. So there's not a bright spot. Anybody who thinks that this reuse of nuclear fuel is a happy green thing really is um, asleep at the wheel.
3: And I would add, um, if I could, um, that... The West Valley Nuclear Waste Site that I mentioned uh, when I spoke, it, it did it was the only commercial reprocessing in the U.S. That's, that's been done, and none of the material that none of the uranium and plutonium that was separated out during that reprocessing was ever used for uh, more nuclear power fuel. Mm. It, it, it had technical issues and problems. Uh, they do do it in other countries, but not as much lately. It's pretty much um, well, we're hoping that it will die out. But calling it recycling is, is like a greenwash word.
4: <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much.
0: And it's also the reason that the major corporation Ariva is having huge financial problems because it's not profitable. Okay, let's do the next question. Great. Thanks for that question, Rosemary. So our next
6: um, question is from a caller. I don't know your name, but you should hear that you're unmuted now. Uh, hello? Hello, can we can, can you, hear you. Oh, thank you.
7: Um, I have, uh, fought, uh, nuclear power and nuclear waste since the 70s, trying to stop San Onofre, Yucca, Mountain, everything back in the 70s. Thank you. You're welcome. And I wish we had been more successful, but uh, the fight has to continue. I have two quick uh, questions. I think they're related. One is because, unfortunately, we have allowed nuclear power to continue, nuclear weapons
3: to continue. We have
7: the waste. And where, and, and obviously most of the people probably listening to this and most of you already know there's, it's dangerous. We've got to get rid of it. It all should stop. But it's not. It's there. So where do you plan, where do you propose a permanent site? Because you've indicated transporting it around from interim to interim temporary isn't going to work. The second related question is, we've got a crazy man who's running uh, who's as the president of this country and he obviously doesn't believe in renewables and he probably loves nuclear power and um, how are you going to stop such a nutty person?
0: Which of our speakers would like to go first? Maybe more than one will want to respond.
5: Well, this is Deb. I think the stance that we've taken again and again is to continually slow the process down. Mary talked about the fact that without Harry Reid it's harder, but in a certain way the, the, the Republicans are not unified on this issue. And so the more they're in conflict about what to do, then the slower the process will be, and that is part of the work we need to do. I mean, CAN takes the position that there will eventually need to be a national sacrifice zone, that there will need to be a site found for deep geological burial of this waste, but that the site will not be determined by who is the weakest and therefore the most vulnerable to taking the waste, but by creating the protocols and what is needed to determine what is the safest place for it to go. And of course, there are no good solutions Two ways There are only terrible ones and less terrible ones. And this, this is the catastrophe bomb- of nuclear power.
7: Would the nuclear bomb testing site uh, from the 50s be that sacrifice
5: area? Since No, I don't. It's not going to be based on what's been contaminated. It's going to be based on what's stable, because what you're talking about is burying it deep within the ground and making it impossible to retrieve. So it's not about what's on the surface. It's about stability, lack of earthquakes, lack of water, All of the issues that science needs to determine with citizens about what would be a site, and then you're going to need informed consent, and you're going to need to have a community agree to it. But it can't be forced down any community's throats, and they can't be put in the position to have short-term economic gains as opposed to long-term health and safety? I have two
3: things that I'd like to add. This is Diane. One is that even if we had a place right now, there's, it's not physically possible to move everything yeah. fast. So it's probably going to take years. Of, I, I can't really guess, you know, how many years. But uh, the people that have it at reactors Need to uh, be involved in the best management at the reactors uh, because you know even if there was something open and they were first in the queue, who knows if they even have containers designed and approved to go into the repository once it's chosen so this is a process that all of the reactor communities have to face unfortunately and um, and the West Valley site as well and and a lot of the weapon sites, so um, we do need to do our best to try to make it as sturdy and repackageable and re- uh, monitorable at where, where it is, or as close to where it is. You know, obviously putting it in the sand at San Onofre is the most ridiculous idea in the world, and I can't believe the Coastal Commission has approved it. But uh, the other...
7: Oh, yeah. With such a disgusting administration, federal administration, are they considering how to proceed
3: as you're proposing? The current legislation, you know, the president hasn't spoken his wisdom on this, but they uh, oh, have any wisdom? Well, you asked. I mean, so the, the current bill, uh, bills in Congress, would set up interim sites. And also would force feed Yucca, even though Yucca has been found to be disqualified. Ian didn't talk about the the cinder cones and the earthquakes, but the Yucca site was canceled for good reason, and it's technically not going to be able to isolate it. So pretending that's an answer is going to waste our time as well. So the centralized sites that don't provide anything more than an additional site and transporting it on the roads and rails um, is not a real solution, but that's what we're being offered because we have to have a pretend answer so they can keep making more of it. Thank you
7: all for answering my questions.
3: Ian,
1: do you want to
0: add anything to this?
1: Well, I'll just add that wherever the site is, um, you know, people need to – the stakeholders in those communities need to be uh, engaged and involved and have some awareness of what they're Uh, exposure risk is because uh, exposure to radiation is cumulative so the more exposure you get uh, the more cancers you'll get and it's uh, over your lifetime and people need to consider that so from the Shoshone perspective the idea that a Nevada test site where they've tested a lot of bombs is a perfect uh, uh, sacrifice zone is not something that we are going to accept because of our past exposure to uh, radiation and fallout from weapons testing, we cannot endure any increased burden of risk uh, from any source, including nuclear waste coming down the highways or any accidents or other uh, types of activities where uh, technologically enhanced naturally occurring radioactive material may come from. So coal ash from coal-fired power plants, uh, radiation release from fracking, uranium mining, these are all things that plague Native American communities, and uh, uh, I, I think they're, they're uh, affecting all of us. You know, Yesterday the uh, CDC released a, a report on the uh, 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 rural increase in cancer rates, and we believe that's in part due to the fallout that went across the continent uh, from uh, weapons released at the test site. So I think we're all in the same boat. Uh, we need to consider what our, our past exposures were and, uh, the risk that we're going to be bearing on, on, uh, disposal of high-level nuclear waste.
7: One last quick question, because back in the 70s, uh, the Shoshone were divided. Some wanted it and some didn't. Is that division, uh, still there or are, are, are you all united now?
1: Well, I don't know who you're talking to, um, uh, You know, the United States government creates what are called government chiefs and government protectorates you recognize as federally recognized Indian tribes. I am not part of that. Uh, We are the uh, government that is sovereign from the United States. We uh, look at the federal statute which created Nevada, for example, which specifically forbids the inclusion of Shoshone country into the boundaries of the United States of any state or any territory and uh, we assert that sovereignty that's who we are it's our identity so you know you're going to always have somebody that you can buy off and pay off and you know what that's what's happening in America and these corporations uh, are the ones that are running America and they can go to some people they can't go to me um, and buy me off but I'm sure there's some people they can buy off so you know I don't know where your facts come from. Somebody took a vote or something? I don't know. No, (laughs) No, I'm
0: I'm, I'm (laughs) Let's move on because (laughs) I actually agree with Ian that that was a fairly uh, off-key comment. So let's go to the next question. Awesome. So I'm going to ask that
6: callers keep their questions short. We have um, quite a few more to get through. So next we have Colcabec. Hello? We can hello, hear you. My name,
2: my, hello, my name is Robert Kolkowak, I'm in Park
1: Forest, Illinois, and I know that both of my senators and my congresswoman, Robin Kelly, have not um, expressed support for shutting down all nuclear power plants. I can, so my question is directed to anyone who can answer it on your panel. Has any member of the current Congress expressed support for shutting down all nuclear power plants or at least phasing them out within the next, soon, within the next decade or any period of time?
3: I'd say in the Senate, um, we've got, uh, uh, well, Senator Markey from Massachusetts has been a strong uh, opponent of nuclear energy for his entire career. Uh, Bernie Sanders is. Um, Those would be the most outspoken ones. Um, The nuclear industry is pretty good at... um, Making sure that all of the members in key positions of committees with jurisdiction are well-funded and don't even consider uh, uh, challenging nuclear. Uh, The Congress is a pro-nuclear place. The the real answer is to stop making more waste, and uh, this Congress has never been willing to even begin to connect making waste and dealing with waste. So we've got an uphill battle.
1: Okay. So I'll check the site to see if, those, if others are listed. Um, but right now, you just you, this Markey and Sanders were about it then, huh? And, oh,
5: well, Sanders, i had, in fact, a mixed history on this. He was for Vermont Yankee before he's now against it. And uh, although he's talked about being against uh, nuclear power. He is for centralized interim storage and for Yucca Mountain. So let's go
0: ahead and keep the questions going fast tonight for the rest of the time. But thank you for your question. Go ahead. Sure. So the next one is from
4: Sheila. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, Thank you. This is Sheila Parks from Boston, Mass. Thank you, everyone, very, very much. I have some quick questions, but I want to say um, Ed Markey has never said close Pilgrim Down, and he has never right. said close to the power plants Down, and neither has Bernie Sanders. I did a very long paper on Bernie His question Sanders. was whether people were, anybody was opposed
3: to nuclear power, and those are no, the I- ones. His, that's
4: not true. i heard his question is asking yeah. um, have they ever said close all nuclear power plants but i have my own questions i just happen to be on the end of that one just the first thank you to nurse and all of the speakers you were all wonderful and i'm very grateful secondly is anybody going to put out a factoid paper, or is it on what you described Mary? Let me finish all my questions first, about, like, how many places, how many states were going to be. I think you said 44 states, et cetera. All those factoids, will those be available to us on a fact sheet to, you know, circulate? And um, did you record this call? And last but not least, my um, major question is, although I want those all answered, Are these um, rail cars and um, trucks and, you know, the road and rail, as you described? will they be marked with the radiation symbol on them? Okay.
5: Well, they have to be marked. I used to be an EMT, Sheila. So they do have to be marked because if there's an accident, hazmat has to be able to know what's in the containers to be able to deal with any accidents. That doesn't mean there will be a big radioactive waste. Or radioactive sign on them, but they all have to be marked on rail and road. Okay, well,
3: thanks. I think though that they're marked as a seven. I don't know whether the radiation symbol is on no, there. No, they but...
5: have to have even okay. a small symbol, because before hazmat gets there, there has to be a decision about whether EMTs can approach. So, you know, as I far haven't... as I know, they do have some and this small is... symbol. And this
3: yep, is being a- recorded, and the information on the maps is already on the website.
4: I just want to say that maybe a month or two ago, I was driving down a very little plane, uh, Side Street in Brookline, Mass., and I looked up and said, oh, my God, this, car, this truck, this white truck with nothing else on it, except I happened to be a totally, I had this teeny, teeny, teeny little radiation. Yep. that's yeah. right. Thanks.
6: Great. Right. So well, our next uh, caller,
8: the number ending in 3916. Hi, um, my name is, hello. Yeah, we um, can hear you. My name is Norma, yeah, I'm Norma Field from Chicago. I really want to thank all of you for bringing together, for discussing this whole issue in terms of environmental justice as well as science and that hoping we can figure out ways to keep those things entwined and opposing this. Um, I have an incidental question. One is, de facto, in the case of nuclear power, I mean, I'm sorry, nuclear weapons, um, has has waste been handled as on-site, except in the case of WIP, for example. So is, is um, the nuclear weapons, is that the choice that been followed? But second, Diane said something intriguing about... Um, Central, centralized interim storage possibly leading to the choice of reprocessing, and I wondered if she could develop that a tiny bit. Could you say again leading
0: to what, Mama?
2: Reprocessing.
0: Oh, yeah, reprocessing. Okay. Do you want to start, Diane? Wait, I'm muted. <laughs> okay.
3: Um, in order for uh, reprocessing to take place, you need to bring the nuclear waste to the location, and uh bringing nuclear waste to a location uh, is not necessarily going to make anybody a whole lot of money so there's uh been expressed interest by the Savannah River um, although it's it's been they decided they didn't want to bring it in uh, but there was talk about um, bringing nuclear waste in and then uh, doing reprocessing with it. So it would just it, by bringing it there it's a setup for for doing something else with it down the road.
8: Right, and to generate revenue I guess. That's
0: what yes. you're
8: saying. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's persuasive. And you had
0: a first question but yeah, very yeah I
8: just 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 in that just to get a whole picture of, of <laughs> nuclear waste in, in this country in the case of weapons, so that's not your topic tonight, have the, has the waste generated by producing weapons been kept on site mostly except um, for whips such as it is? No. No. Uh, no,
3: no. The, the Department of Energy has a whole set of complexes. This is Diane. Uh-huh. Uh, it has a whole set of complexes around the country, and they uh, is some of the waste, the so-called low-level waste, uh, is sometimes stored at those sites. Um, there's often a burial ground there that, or burial grounds that are used. Uh, but then they also send it to Tennessee where there are a lot of processors. Uh, there used to be a big incinerator in Tennessee, and... Uh, that for the Department of Energy Waste, which is the worst thing you can do. One of the worst things you can do with nuclear waste is to burn it. Um, and so that uh, made a lot of people sick. The, the incinerator did finally close, but now there are companies that are doing this uh, processing of waste for both nuclear power and weapons and now importing waste from around the world to process and release into our everyday consumer goods and into regular garbage dumps and tennessee is just one of the that's the leading state on having processors but they're also in illinois and pennsylvania not sure about california but there are a number of oh, definitely the state of washington and that's not for the irradiated fuel that we're talking about or the high level mm-hmm. liquid waste from reprocessing that's for the everything else in the us is considered so called low level so that's for that now for the high level waste uh the from reprocessing that is currently in washington and idaho and south carolina and then there's summit west valley that's mixed commercial and weapons high-level waste and that um is still there it would potentially go to a permanent dump uh high-level waste site of some type
8: thank you is this on the is is this kind of information on the nearest website too um somewhat
3: yes uh, yeah, some of what I've said, but you're also welcome to call and or, or send emails, and we can help you with that. Great, thank
8: you so much. I just, I'm just, I'm just horrified thinking about all the temporary mobile incinerators being used in Fukushima now. Um, after hearing you say the experience in Tennessee, the experience in Tennessee has been. Next question. All right, thank you.
6: Next caller, you are unmuted.
0: Hello. We can hear you, go (laughs)
4: ahead. My name name is Susan Carpenter and I'm a member of Cape Town Winders. I am going on Sunday to a town hall meeting with Senator Elizabeth Warren and with Representative Keating and I would like to be able to leave them with some hard copy. And I'm wondering what you would suggest I print out and hand to them.
0: Um, This is Mary, and I'm just going to dive in and say that there's a letter signed by about 50 organizations that's topical on the bill that's right now in the U.S. House, and we can send that to you. And I believe it is also posted. Jasmine, tell them where it is. How can they find it? Find what? The letter that went to Capitol Hill signed by um, 50 groups about on the Shimkus bill? Sure. So, it's
6: on the Don't Waste America campaign
0: page Mary mentioned earlier.
6: Um, so, if you go to Um I'm on that right now. <laughs> okay. Perfect. On the left, you should see um, a section that says campaign. Yes. Okay, uh, click that, drop-down menu, and click Don't Waste America.
2: Find out that,
4: and that's so the overview and history.
6: Uh-huh, so if you scroll down, uh, you should see a section titled Recent Updates and Activities. It may not be there exactly, but it's the first uh-huh. section at the end of the
4: text. Okay, Recent
0: So we can also send you an email of it, Susan. I would appreciate it. Do you have any
4: other questions? That was it. I just wanted to make certain I had something that they could hold and read.
3: If you you send an email, actually, if if, do you do email, uh, Susan? Yes, I do. Okay, if you send an email, um, then we can also send you a copy of the letter that is being dropped to the Hill. When's your meeting with them? On Sunday. Okay. Well, we can send you a copy of the letter that they'll be receiving Friday or Monday on this issue as well as the multi-group letter. So go ahead
4: and send an email, and we'll send it. We'll do. Thank you
0: very much. And I just want to encourage everybody who's listening to make time to make a phone call to your elected officials, especially U.S. House, U.S. Senate, and talk to them about these issues because right now they want to rush this bill in the House to a vote without any debate on the floor, just what they call a suspension vote, where it just goes up, it's non-controversial, it's a voice vote, and boom, it's over. So everybody reaching out to their elected officials this week, next week, could really help at least say, we should at least talk about this. I mean, a simple message like that, that it's not uncontroversial. It It is worthy of our attention. Okay, we have about... Oh, a little more than five more minutes, so let's keep going. I think
6: it's minutes. Yeah, go ahead. Five minutes.
0: Next question? Uh,
3: hello? Looks like a Pennsylvania person, 814. Area code? Hello?
0: Maybe move on. I don't think it's connecting. Maybe somebody left the phone. I understand that France obtains of
6: its total power more than 60% from nuclear power plants. Do we have anything to learn from France About safe storage of nuclear materials.
3: Um, I don't know that France has isolated its waste. I think what we can learn is that we don't want to reprocess like France has, um, because France has polluted the ocean and has had uh, problems. At and it's my understanding that French reactors are going to be. Uh, closing down now, finally, um, but the French—I uh, I do not know of the French having found any way to isolate the radioactive waste. If that's the the question,
6: that was part of the question. Yes, that is sufficient. Thank you.
0: Anyone else want to add to that answer? All right, let's move along.
2: Hi, this is Donna.
9: Go ahead. Oh, hi. I, I just wanted uh, to mention to that caller uh, uh, before on dot uh, on safetyorg right at the top is a copy of that community letter supported by 49 organizations. So that's another source for people. And also I've studied that uh, Shimkus bill and... Uh, It it actually removes safety requirements from the Nuclear Waste Policy Act. It takes away state rights, water rights, air rights, and if you volunteer to become a site, you give up all your rights to anything that might go wrong. You you have no transparency, no public input. It's a a big takeaway of, of state and local rights and a reduction in safety requirements um, ignoring transport issues. They're going to give money away to these companies. They'll build the site. Waste may never go there. And what we get in return is a reduction of our rights. And there's some points about that also on uh, San Onofre Safety.
0: And that is the name of a nuclear power plant and the name of Donna Gilmore's tremendous efforts to educate all of us on many of these issues. Yeah, Yeah. and morefreesafety.org is the website, and I recommend it.
9: And each one of these canisters has about as much highly radioactive cesium-137 as was released from the Chernobyl nuclear accident. Um, The canisters, I'm not aware of any canisters that are cracking, but we've got 2,400 of them, around 2,400 in the country, that may have cracks started, but they have no way to inspect them. The NRC right now has not approved Holtec's transport cast for high burn fuel because Holtec cannot prove to them that they can inspect canisters. Canisters with even partial cracks cannot be transported. Also, they want them to confirm that the high burn-up fuel in them is not damaged. They have no way to do that. Um, and the NRC is also still evaluating if just train vibration is enough to cause the fuel assembly cladding to, to fail. Um, so those are some other issues that... And, and when I listened to all the hearings that they had, all the all the sessions they had on this bill. Not one of those, you know, not one of those uh, issues about the canisters or eliminating safety features was even, even mentioned. Okay, thank
3: you. Thank you
0: very much, Donna. Anybody want to add anything on this? And we have about, oh, four more minutes. Any other speakers want to chime in? Okay, let's take the next question.
3: Is there another question? There's an 814 area code that looks like it might be able to speak, but
0: I don't hear anybody. There's actually a point I'm going to throw in, and then if that person is there, we'll come back. Um, but Ian was talking about radiation, and that's become a major focus of my work. And there's a study that was published at the end of last year that most people have not heard about that's really, really important. All these years, there's been a lot of controversy about I mean, the moral issue of using the data from the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki is so huge. And then there's all kinds of criticisms about the data and how it's not representative of real communities because these are people who survive such huge, horrible situations on and on and on, and they're all real issues. But there's also been an ongoing thing that the industry could kind of hide behind, which is do many little doses add, that add up, the cumulative factor that Ian mentioned, is the, is the outcome, in terms of cancer anyway, the same from those cumulative doses as if you were at Hiroshima or Nagasaki and survived and they reconstructed those acute, fast, high doses that didn't kill people but were all at once, boom, boom. And so a team led by Dr. Uh, Richardson at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in the um, public health division, undertook to study workers who are, of course, mostly male and adult, but nonetheless, that group, um, over 30 years of data now, with people who are getting relatively small exposures year after year as nuclear workers, asking the question, does the cancer outcomes from these workers mirror the cancer outcomes from the survivors of the A-bombs. In other words, can you add up all those little doses and do you have the same cancer rate outcome in large groups of people? And the answer is yes. And so the linear no-threshold statement that we all talk about when you're kind of a nerd on radiation means that there is what we've said tonight, no safe dose, and the more radiation you get, the higher the chance that you'll get cancer, but it doesn't matter whether you get that radiation as one big flash from an A-bomb, or if you get it from all the minor, quote unquote, minor exposures that we all get, like a nuclear waste cask traveling by, or an X-ray, or whatever. So I just want to let people know that they-
3: I think there are two more callers.
0: Okay, let's go then.
3: Jasmine, are they unmuted? Is there someone from Texas?
2: Yes, hello, my name is Eleanor. Can you hear me? Yes. I live in Hondo, Texas, uh, between San Antonio and Andrews, and I know you don't have much time, but I've been working with the SEED Coalition out of Austin to, um, you know, become aware of what the people in Andrews are doing, and uh, you go to that website, SEED Coalition. Um, Karen Haddon has been working with Dr. Arjun Macadoni uh, to get some uh Information to them for their struggle. But my big question now is uh, regarding the buy off and pay off of how is Rick Terry related to waste um, control specialist out in Andrews? What is their personal relationship? And two, is there any way of knowing if by rail or by truck uh, we can? Have these thin-walled canisters reinforced with lead or something? I mean, you know, you would think the NRC could regulate that. My husband in the '80s was a sedimentologist on a committee at the NRC to try to find a safe place for waste, and there was none. But apparently, Sweden is doing some deep geology work like that. But so I'm, I'm uh, all over the place. But my two questions are: Where is Rick Perry related to these? And um, how will they mark these canisters, and how soon will they be embroiled? Um,
3: the Rick Perry connection. Uh, among Rick Perry's three largest donors are uh, were um, Harold Simmons, who is the. Uh, was the owner of Waste Control Specialists. He passed away a couple of years ago, but he's among the top three. And one of the other ones is Kelsey Warren um, from the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline. So there's a pretty clear connection there. And
0: um, I think we have one more caller, and we're supposed to be closing up. So, yeah, we'll we, we will take that last call, but she wanted to also know about the timeline.
4: What is the level, of, approximate level of radiation in fracking wastewater, or fracking waste? Each site is different, and yes, some of it is highly radioactive, some of it
0: is faintly radioactive, but each site is going to be
4: different. About what levels were in the, some of the sites that were found? Uh, what level, the levels in, some, in each of them? I'm going to give
0: you my email and send me a, a question that way, and I'll do my best to get you information. M-A-R-Y-O is the first part, M-A-R-Y-O at N-I-R-S org. There are some papers that have been written that I can send you, but it's not my specialty, and I can't answer the question off the top. Thanks. Let's go to the last caller, and then we're going to say good night. That was it. Well, that was it. Okay. Thank you so much, Ian, Diane, Deb. Thank you very much for joining us, and thank and you Jasmine. to everyone who called in, and thank you, Jasmine, very much for administering the tech side tonight. We appreciate everybody who participated. We do these quarterly, so watch for the next one in a few months. Thank you.
9: Good night.